Look how nicely coordinated we are. Both in the in the greys. Um, we got a mind blowing story today, folks. Not just hard hitting true crime though. It's a very important story about injustice. You know, I've talked over and over about how a jury would indict a ham sandwich and court his theater and my book on making a murder lists the 10 ways that prosecutors and the authorities use to frame innocent people. And we are going to be getting to all that. So, <clears throat> Kevin Lane, fitted up and fighting back. I've been reading it, like it so much. I've asked Kevin if he's interested in doing an audio book. I think he's got some kind of plans for that, so an audio book should be available soon. If you do want to check the book out, though, the link will be in the description box below the video, as will all of other Kevin's links. He's described as the UK's Mr. Shawshank. And I'll just read some of the quotes from the back. <clears throat> Important, alarming, urgent, powerful book raises many troubling questions, not just about the conviction of Kevin Lane, but about the criminal justice system and the use of public interest immunity certificates to keep important evidence hidden from police view. That was from The Observer. The Guardian, over 25 years, he has not wavered in his insistence that he did not commit murder. He has always believed there was a conspiracy to put him on trial. And by turning detective and lawyer, he has discovered things about bent coppers and their relationships with serious criminals that look like a plot from The Sopranos. <laughs> yes, there is a place where criminals and police coexist. And that's a theme in this as well. This is the inside story of one of the man's fight to prove his innocence in one of the country's longest running murder cases. Kevin Lane's story is a deeply fascinating one and should be read by anyone who is concerned about the state of the criminal justice system in Britain today. And our very first podcast guest served 34 years in California prison for a crime he had not committed. My lawyer got Ray Crone, the snaggletooth killer off death row. And I learned, that was the beginning of me learning all the tricks the prosecutors play. They hid his DNA. They paid an expert witness 50 grand to say his teeth matched marks on the victim when they knew that he, they didn't. It's called testy lying. It's so common in America. So as well as hearing some hard-hitting stories today, it's got an important social message about what should be fixed in the justice systems, not just in this country, but worldwide from what I'm, I've been learning. Thank you very much for coming on, Kevin. You're welcome. Cheers. This is the Arizona prison house, Jake. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah Fisting, yeah. <laughs> See, Boris Johnson fists a lot, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Strong prison, UK, blah, blah. <laughs> so, Kevin, you've just got released, basically, what, like weeks ago? Yeah, no, a few days ago. A few days ago. Tuesday, yeah. And when did they put you back aside? To start that one, what year was that? Uh, 2020. 2020. But you February. had a very big sentence for, that you were innocent of. What, what what year did you get out on that one? I went away in 95, yep. January, and I came away in 215, January. 95 to 215. Both Januaries and served uh, 20 years. 20 years. So we're going to get to all that. Now, I've watched your recent interview with Steve Rafe. Great guy. Shout out to Steve. Please support what he's doing on his channel. And we like to start out 
with hard hitting story from your life, and I think you getting shot. That story that you told Steve Ray. If you're right to repeat that, please. I mean, I smile about it, but it's uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, so. I've sort of, I've always had this insight to see money in things. So I knew back in 1988 that the way forward in in this country, I thought, would be security, but not the security as massive as it is now on on premises and such, but camera security. So I I, I bought a a, uh, a security firm for that stepping stone purpose of going into camera security. Uh, as a result of that, secured contracts, pubs and clubs and raves and stuff. Um, one of the premises that I had, I had it by way of, they paid me £50 a week to ensure that I could get operatives to them within half an hour without having uh, security every night. I mean, they might not call you out in six months, but they pay you £50 a week still, and that's through brewers and such. So one of these venues that I had received a call from them and said that someone had came back who had had a few problems there before. Um, so we went down, I went myself actually, with a couple of pals of mine, uh, David Wolf. He was a big Jamaican black fella, my two best mates, and a uh, very big bloke and speak like that and a bit of a very soft approach. You'd think he was a, a you wouldn't you think it was gay if you didn't know him, right? But he's and then Marcus, my pal, who twitches a bit when he gets agitated. <laughs> <laughs> so we was a right bunch of three of us. Went to this venue. And I was just chatting to this fella. And then a, a car pulled up. And asked this fella if he was all right. And he obviously knew him. I didn't know these two fellas in the car at all. Never met them. So I hadn't offended them, I hadn't done anything wrong. It was just one of those incidents that happens when you're involved in the licensed premises game. And you don't have to done nothing or upset nothing anyone after time. Someone's got a few drinks in them or whatnot. Um anyway, he turned around and he says to me, You all right, mate? I said, Yeah, I'm all right. And he said, uh, Do you want some of this? And he put it on the car window. And I said to him, what are you going to do with that? He said, I'm going to kill you. And he, and he went wallop and he shot me. And to be fair, yeah, so... That was, <laughs> that was in 1991, that. And uh, I went home, tended to my wounds with a few cotton buds and that, and um, went to bed. Not straight away, of course, but I went out looking for these blokes, couldn't find them, and then the police pulled us over. So we knew then, uh, you know, the night was up, went home. And then I was arrested at home by armed police, like a football pitch all lit up. I found that, couldn't really work that out, Sean. I'd been shot, and then the police come to me, took me away. Um, I've still got bits of lead in my head now. It's going to your skull from the shotgun. Um, so it all memories, but I try to laugh about it. I'm still alive. So when he pulled the trigger then, were you in shock? I felt shocked when he shot me because you, obviously it's like taking a right-hander and a bit flashing in my eyes and that. And uh, I, I thought, you fucking get I looked at him again. And he's pointing the bleeding shotgun at me again, so I've, I took off. 
<laughs> I'll tell you, I had my fast livers on there, I've got to say. <laughs> At what point were you able to assess your wounds? Well, there and then, because it was the blood was running down my face, it was pouring down, and uh, I put a, a, a top onto my head to stop the bleeding. And then like, I got shot straight home, obviously got into the shower, washed all my hair off, and it's still pouring out of blood. And I could see the holes in my side, in my head. So I thought, well, that's cotton buds. So I was sticking in like cotton buds. And of course, they, the wounds are far bigger than as they, the swelling goes down, they will shrink like any wound. And uh, I was pushing like bits of cotton in there and then cutting them off. Uh, I thought I was all right. I thought, well, that's all right. I'm, you know, it's not really bleeding now. You thought it didn't need hospitalisation? Well, I, I thought I could, that I'd, I'd done quite a good job and um, I'd be all right. So. <laughs> 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 yeah I fell for a shower once backwards right and I cut all my back it's like a bear's attacked me it's like that film bleeding with DiCaprio in it or what and my back was like that honestly and I didn't go to the hospital with that I just taped myself up and I went to see a band called The Jewelers Play I didn't want to miss them I enjoyed their their music and I went to the, the hospital the next day and they said they sewing up hour and a half wait I walked out the door and when I got some surgical strips and that and just tucks it up and it just goes to show as long as it's clean you look after it like my best mate wild man who died last year he hated hospitals he would always um he said i'm self-healing yeah. no matter what injuries he had he would always yeah. just try and heal him himself yeah i broke my hands and trained on them because people say like the quickest way to repair it is get it using it again that ain't in, in all aspects of life but when you're in prison you do tend to take care of yourself best way you can if you're honest if you've got a cold you go and get some amoxicillin off of someone over there who's who's had them you know and saved them yeah it's getting into the doctor and getting them you might wait bleeding days yeah in the meantime you're suffering like hell so so you got shot you go and recuperate on your own and then you your first thought is of revenge was it got to get this bastard um Yeah, you've got to say there's elements of that, of course. At that age, I was that very way that mindful of that. Um, you go looking. But I was up. I think I got remanded. So I accept that uh, I've always worked. I like work and that, but uh, I duck and dive. And sometimes, like I come from a little village and I was just a, you know, a country boy, a little country boy in a little village, a, hard, a fighting man's village. Which village is that? Harefield, Middlesex. And back in the day, it had a lot of pubs and a lot of people coming there for pub calls. And it was a, quite a bit of trouble sometimes growing up in that environment, in a village as well. Um, you, you can end up having a bit of a colourful life, but uh, I forget where I was going now. So what was you saying? <laughs> I was asking about revenge on the guy with the shotgun. Yeah, like... Uh, I got nicked for a kidnapping, so it put a stop to that. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you're a charismatic guy, well-dressed, good speaker, got business savvy. Sounds like you were mixing with some people who were quite heavy. How, how did that come about in your life? Um, well, I didn't really know much about who was who. excuse me, in this country. It didn't bother me. It never really did. I just went to work. Yeah. I liked to work as a young man. I'm a child. I worked really hard through my life. Paper rounds, 
gardens, things like that, cutting someone's grass and making it a regular job. Uh, into the bakers at 12, um, after the paper round. And Harefield's are very, very rural. So you're going down country lanes, there's no lighting. And as a 12-year-old boy, like, you're crapping your pants, I've got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody bushes all the way over you, going down these little hedge rows. You think, Gordon Bennett. Mm. And it don't matter how big and tough you are, you're shitting yourself out in them country lanes <laughs> uh, at 12. So I went from them into the bakers and the bakers into the chip shop and chip shop into working at 14, 15, a full-time builder called Josh Clack in Harefield. So I took a got an, uh, an older man's job, actually, who was married and that, but I worked that hard. At 15, I had a full-time man's job and worked in the chip shop in the evening and on the weekends as well. Because uh, at that time, you may not recall, you would recall, actually, Sean, or you do look somewhat younger than me, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> the Sunday laws changed. And they used to open on a Sunday, didn't they? And I think the pubs did it one time, stay open for longer. So I left this country in 91 for America, and I was there for almost 20 years. So just after then, because it was a bit before that, wasn't it, I believe, yeah, changed. Yeah, yeah. And I used to work in the chip shop on the Sunday on my own at 15. And like the, the owner of the shop, he's passed away now, Ian, he said, no, Kevin, you can open it on your own. We're doing Sunday laws, do you want to open it? And he, was, he trusted me that much at 15 years of age, I'm opening up a shop on my own, serving all the locals coming into the pub, the local lads who have had a few beers and they can get a bit boisterous like most people can. And at 15, I was entrusted with that. So um, I've always enjoyed working on that. And then I went on to uh, selling cars and bits and pieces and got a carpentry apprenticeship. Doing that work at a young age then, did you have to sacrifice school for that? I got expelled. Why? Um, I had a run-in with a teacher. I was caught in a sixth-form hut. Shouldn't have been there. Got a bit. He bit me, the teacher. He bit you? Bit me, yeah, he bit me. I weren't just sure, sure if that was my fault for punching him. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those bites. He, he grabbed me arm and then bit it, all right, to be fair. But I did think he was being a bit rough with me. He grabbed me by my ears and I thought, you ain't doing that. So I punched him and he bit me and I punched him and he threw me out. And I got expelled for it. And uh, it doesn't make it right, of course, but um, got me expelled. And then I got the job then at that age. Did you ever get bullied? No. Well, everyone gets bullied. Yeah. It's whether you stand up for yourself at the time. You know, some people can, some people can't at the time. When did this natural ability to stand up for yourself, when did you discover you had that? Um, you don't really re realise that so much as a child if, you've, if you're able to do that. If you're not able to do it, you'll certainly know you can't. But uh, I just seemed to, I didn't understand all of that until I got to the, just going into the seniors really at 12. At that age, you think you're invincible, didn't you? Like Superman, hero stuff. Um, so I was always able to fight from in the infants with my brother. Uh, who had an accident as a child. Kids can, you know, take the mickey out of each other. So I was fighting from an early age with my brother. You were protecting him. He had, had like a big extended crash helmet on his head and he had to wear it at school. Um, he had plates in his head and he got run over. So it started from there, really. Um but then as I got older, and I say I went into other bits of business, I got a security company, purchased that, started working. And I was actually asked to work uh, discos and that at 18 before I bought the company. So I thought, well, listen, I don't go to clubs anyway where there's trouble. Some clubs I'll never 
even went to in my area where there was a lot of trouble. So I thought well, I might as well work on the door and get paid for it if I've got her. So I started working the clubs, then see the uh, the insight for the cameras and such, and bought the com bought the company for that. Um, but ended up going to prison through it in some senses, like for the kidnapping. Um, we'll get to that. What hurry situations did you have on the doors? I don't want to mention their names. Yeah, nice no ladies. names, no lawsuits, no defamation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a few. Uh, there's always a problem on the door, isn't there, at some point or other, and there's many stories look, so I would have thought that a lot of people can refer to. I've had blokes pull guns on me, um, been shot. Um, been shot more than once? I've been shot at more than once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know the people. So. <laughs> Is that because you learned to run after the first time? Leading duck. <laughs> no, I stood there, yeah. but... Uh, I've had guns pointed in, in, at me at times, and I've not known the people. It's not it's one of those situations. But on the door, you can turn someone away, and it can be the smartest of doors. It can be country clubs. It doesn't matter where you are. If you turn away the wrong person or the wrong mindset, they may just come back with a gun, and it does happen, and more so today. So I've had a, a few times pulled on me. Did you have a situation with the rugby players? I did, yep. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't really working the door though. That was a, uh, I was away working with a friend. So I've, I've always sort of like bumped into trouble along the way because of the way I look as a young boy. And then a lot of young boys will sort of like ignore someone being rude to them or you've got your, your missus with you and come up and start being, you know, cheeky to your old woman while you're standing because you might be 11 stone seven, like a baby looking face. And then next thing you know, you say, oh, what are you doing, mate? Behave yourself. Right? And they say, shut your face, you, you silly little git. And your next thing, oh, you've blinked, you looked at them and they're on the floor asleep. You think, yeah, because I had a young, sharp temper. So that always got me in and out of trouble from having, because I won't, I'll behave appropriately around a woman. I don't like swearing around ladies. But then times change. So if I was in your company and you said something, I'd say, can you leave it out? Ladies present. And some people take offence to that. Times have changed, haven't they? Well, you know, we still uphold the old school views on this channel <laughs> these days, like women, kids, cartels torturing people on camera, videos, you, you know, it's, it's insane, isn't it? And the, old, the old school mafia don't harm women, don't harm kids, that kind of thing. Yeah, times have changed dramatically. Yeah. So being having that mindset as a young man, it did get me into a lot of trouble, hence the kidnapping. So what was the situation with the rugby players first? Well, I was up with a friend of mine called Chris Hampton. He was a factory distributor for Scott's and Fetzer, and he was selling the Kirby Hoovers. Um, I sold the Kirby Hoovers and got a fantastic living out of them. I've got know. one of them. <laughs> Do you know what? I literally, I earned, I sold 26 of them in a weekend. Wow. Mm. I delivered 16. Because you don't always get finance on some, and I sold two and one else. To be fair, on one of the well, that weekends, I had a great living out of it. Um, really, I mean, fantastic living selling Hoovers. You wouldn't believe it. Like four thousand seven hundred pound, uh, I got in my first weekend wage. What the hell? You're looking all those years ago now. Yeah. So I I got an unsecured overdraft with the TSB banking, based on my monthly wages of fifteen thousand pound back then. So. 
I went straight into that for a little while. Chris was my factory distributor, Chris Hampton, uh, and he'd had some equipment stolen from him uh, and his partner in another area. He's got different areas, distributorships, so he had a partner elsewhere. And these lads that had stolen the equipment, nothing could be brought about or brought on them. Um, the young lady that threatened, or should I say, informed on them, it's not the quite correct word where it's a young girl just doing her job. And she obviously told my pal about these fellas nicking £100,000 worth of equipment it came to in, in Hoover's they'd nicked by, out the back door and selling them in the, on the cheap. Good business, 100 Hoover's, you think of it. So they had a few pounds out of it, uh, but they threatened the girl anyway with a knife and the baby and said, we come back and we cut you next time with this knife if you say anything again. So a friend of mine called me up and I didn't think it was right. I thought, well... You're young at that age, aren't you? And you, you've got beliefs that you don't have when you get a few years older or you think about things differently. But still, I didn't agree with it. Uh, I'd handle it differently now, completely. But then, I thought I can't have a word of him or them. So, I went down there with a, a couple of pals of mine. Took him, I waited for him to come to work. i never forget it. I was, everybody was there sitting there peacefully, making them cups of tea and that. But he worked at his offices. So we kept everyone in the offices. It was all fine, like tea and biscuits. I was getting quite tired making them all tea. <laughs> but it was all happy days. I was bleeding. And this fella came in. It was the wrong fella. We got hold of him, first of all. And then he turned up, took him away, roughed him up a bit. And I went to prison for that. Um, I've got two years for it. So what was your conviction? Started me off attempted murder and then it ended up getting down to a GBH, and then when it came to court, I got done for by GBH, and uh, I got two years, two years, two years, and two years, and I thought it was going to run uh, consecutively. But during the trial, the I never gave evidence, and the jury were put in a hotel, and I forget, it was very hot, so they've gone into a hotel that night, come back the next morning, and they've still got the same clothes on some of the ladies. Yeah, so that was uncomfortable. And then the judge said he was going to put them into a hotel until the Monday. So or you know, I don't think we came back on a Saturday morning. I can't recall. But anyway, they went back out. And 20 or so minutes later, they've come back with a decision. So we've been brought back into court. They've gone guilty. I've gone downstairs to, uh, to have a discussion with my barrister. We get called back upstairs. So when we go back upstairs, the jury came in and some ladies were crying, clearly crying. A couple of blokes were shaking their head and they said they'd come to the wrong decision. Yeah. And the, and the judge said, I'll take your first answer. I, know, yeah. I said, ain't a game show. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. And, uh, you said that? I, I said that to him. I said, ain't a game show. Bloody and uh, he said, I understand there's going to be immediate appeal. But I didn't. I said, no, I'm not going to appeal. But the two years that I'd, I'd got, I got sentenced to, I did six months from mine. I got bail. I got bailed because the police got caught out lying. They doctored some statements and wrote down. So if you turn around and said, it looks like him, it's not him. They wrote, it looks like him, yes, it's him. So when that came out at court, I got bailed because I was only reminded on that. Um, and I went to I went back to court 14 months later and got the guilty. So I thought two years, you know, I'm only looking at it really uh, 14 months, something like that, 16 months. And uh, I said, I'm happy with that. What was your first day in prison like on that occasion? 
Well, I went to Bullingdon. It was a new prison. So there was a lot of staff in, in there. They were fresh out of training school. So very disorganised. I went with, obviously, Mr Hampton. He got sentenced for that as well, just for asking me to do it, which, as you know, that's a law. Mm. Bleak. New prison, though. Before that, I'd only done uh, Reading on remand, which is an old Victorian prison. So I've, I've done the slopping out, of course, with a diesel tea and a big bucket, they come at your door and tip that into you. And then you go into a new modern prison, which uh, it's not so many cockroaches, well, none at all at that time, crawling over your face while you're in bed. Or broken windows in your cell, like the old Victorian pirates, you know, in the castles with the windows like that, big thick walls, freezing. You've got to put newspaper between your sheets to keep warm. And you go into a, a new prison build, completely different. So at that time, it was like futuristic going from an old Victorian prison. I, didn't, I was a young man at the time. So you definitely have a different approach or outlook on prison at that age. doesn't matter what, what sentence you get, although the sentences that they hand out now, 30 and 35 and 40 years to, even 30 years to 21 to 26-year-olds, doesn't leave there much hope in the horizon for coming home you want to try and release people into society so but that's another issue that um two years at that time serving six months i knew it was just like a short holiday well no you miss your kids and your missus and that of course you do but oh, so i'm gonna be a little one and i'll be out did they come visit you yeah yeah i was lucky enough to have visits and um no phones then though at the time they'd just come in the phones and they was in an office it wasn't on the wing. You had to book the phone call and things. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit different still. Phones were just coming in. Tellies weren't in yet. They was in in 99. How did you get on with the inmates? Did you have like a cellmate or did you have your own cell? On that sentence there, I had um, a cellmate, my Cody, but only for six weeks. you Cody in, in the same cell? Yeah, six weeks. And then I was put in, I got a single cell. Can't beat a single cell, can you? I'd have, well, of course, 20 years I'd a single cell for. But, um, yeah, you can't beat your own cell, for Christ's sake. It's like living in a toilet with someone, isn't it, basically? Well, it is. You know, they get up, they want to use the toilet or, you know, whatever they want to do, behavioural pattern. We all live differently, don't we? Yes. And it often makes me think about animals in the zoo where you see them attacking each other. You think, I know exactly how you feel. You feel differently when you see animals after you've been in prison, don't you? Yeah, you do. You yeah. know, because you think you're locked in a place with nothing else to do and you, you can see why you go stir crazy or people flip at the something they wouldn't ordinarily flip at. But it's had a build-up of accumulation of time and frustration and such and then while at the top goes. Everything's magnified. It is. It's a pressure cooker at times. It is yeah. magnified. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is magnified. So what was your life like when you finished that sentence? Um, what, the two? The two. I came out to businesses, so um, I went away with businesses and I came out to businesses still. But I set up a, uh, a company. I, I like, so I love work, so I was already thinking about that before I came home. And I, I rented a yard, commercial yard, and started sourcing the metals. I was just about to start sourcing them. And then... Um, 
I didn't do it in the end, but I set the yard up to do it. And I rented the yard out and I got a living out of that by from the rents. But thinking about it now, of course, my thought pattern at the time would have been far more better to go into the metal because the metal was a massive game now, isn't it, recycling? So that I got into that. That kept me very busy. I just bought a new house again, which was nice. I never even stayed in it until I came home. Um, lots going on. It was a very short period of time anyway. It wasn't like 20 years, Sean. And, you know, you've got a, you come out and you've got people with different coloured hair great big bumpers on their feet speaking a different language <laughs> <laughs> i was like russian poland what's up were you over there mate brazilian <laughs> and i noticed that in the prison because mm. you get all the different nationalities coming in along the landings and before it was just like british or the odd colombian or you know something like that. next thing you know it's completely multinational on the landings, which is great for cooking if you're in dispersals. <laughs> <laughs> I had Thais, Indians, any meal you could think of, you could get. And that was all right. So what, let's set the table then. What were the circumstances then that led to the next arrest? The, I went to live in Spain. Yeah. Um, came home from Spain. It didn't work out there. Too fast. It's not too fast. It's like, uh, I went to Tenerife. It wasn't the right area for me to go to, really, if you want to. I went to do some timeshares. But I'd never been away as a young man. Previously, when I won holidays, like for Scots and Fetzer, I went to, uh, where's it all? Three places. Egypt was one of them. Oh. Egypt. <laughs> Two other places. It was all for young kids to go to, like the, the, the party scene. And I never went. I gave the holidays away. So I wanted to work. And next thing you know, I've gone to live in Tenerife. So I'd missed all of that, but then gone to live in an area like that. So I think I stayed in for about, in the six months I was out there, I couldn't have stayed in two weeks, going out every night, whether it's just for a meal. It's, but uh, it's difficult when you're living in the middle of a holiday I guess, a resort. Bleeding Tenerife was like a mini Britain for me, and um, I don't think it was the right place to go to for a young man looking for work in the middle of a party resort. So uh, I lived out there for a little while. Came home. Um, it was definitely not for me, Tenerife. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and I left the island, came home, and then... What year was that? 94. Okay. Came back to, with Kim and the children. She just didn't think it was the right environment for us out there, and she made the right decision. And it wasn't, especially, like I say, for a young couple. So I came home. I had a few problems out there as well, I must say, with some locals that I did resolve, but the police at the time may have wanted to make some inquiries. So I left the island under a false passport. Um, I'd had a straightener with a couple of people. Straighteners, like, nothing, you know, just straight guys. I was a big doorman. He ended up coming back to England for convalescence. And made a, his injuries were quite significant. It was just a fight. I was quite surprised at his injuries, but he was a big ball set fella. Big bow chest, shaving head. Look, he looked like a right, he was a right hard nut. I was just didn't hang around. I thought, I'm not letting him get hold of me and pull me head off. And then, so and I ended did, up coming did he, up. Did he start that trouble? He did, yeah. There was there was some problems in, in I was living on the Gulf de Sur. And it was a nice golf course. 
and there were some locals talking about some bar staff talking about some, some things they shouldn't have been discussing. And I raised to the manager. Anyway, he came over to the manager, and uh, I was getting a bit uh, irate about it. And he said, listen, calm down, mate. And I said, it's got nothing to do with you. I said, if you don't mind, I said, you can just keep out of it. And uh, it went on. He said, listen, mate, I've told you once. He said, if you want to talk about it, he said, we can go outside. I went, and then that was it, really. By then, um, anyway, I jumped up, he jumped up. And uh, we had a bit of a, uh, a set to for a while. He got taken out. And uh, the police came. But they come over there with, like, Machine guns over their shoulders and that, didn't they? They don't hang about. Is it that span those Spanish cops, what they call the civil guardia or something? Yeah, they yeah. come rushing about over there and I thought, hold on a minute. Like in England it's SPG, you know, you know, you're coming over here with guns for uh, two fellas who've had a straightener. Like, well, there's a lot of blood at the time, I admit, but uh blood don't mean everyone anyone's been killed. It might have been worrying, I accept that, but at that point I thought, oh, I don't need to be staying out here with these. So I came home under an exit visa, left Spain behind me. Um, went back to work in England and then I got pulled in for the murder in January, some months later. Didn't expect it in terms of, you know, if you haven't killed anyone, you don't expect to have armed police come, come and get you. They arrested me in Newcastle with the rugby players because these two rugby players have been, there's a bit boisterous in the place. One of them, He'd punched a few people, uh, and he went to hit my pal. So before he hit him, I hit him. And then it escalated and got took outside. I got picked up by a great big bleeding rugby player by my feet. I was about 11 stone seven at the time, and he just picked me up. My little legs were dangling. <laughs> I'm telling you, I thought, bloody hell, like, got bears picked me up. So we got outside. I had a, a, a little set-by with him. And then I ended up leaving. Uh, I didn't, I, I must say, I didn't, I didn't run off, but uh, there was a big group of blokes standing in front of me. And every time I went to them, they backed off. I thought, but there's a whole load of you. But uh, thank God they didn't. So I left and got arrested for that. And I got done for assault on the two rugby players. And went back to court for it. And when I went back to court, I got arrested for the Robert McGill murder. Did you even know Robert McGill? No, I'd never met McGill. Never met him. So it was a bit of a, a shock. I didn't, I knew of the name. You hear of someone being killed in the area. And then when I got arrested for it, I thought, well, you know, they must put in a lot of people for this. So is it a case of like the usual suspects then? Because you were in fights a lot with people and bouncing and things. You think that they just thought, right, we've got to solve this crime. Let's grab someone who fits the profile of someone who's a fighter. I weren't sure at first. I thought they were just pulling in uh, everyone. Uh, yeah, and it, in, in that sense, if oh, someone's just throwing your name in or uh, they're pulling you in to see what bleeding uh, they might find on you, like a phone number or a map or something or anything, you know, that might lead them to someone or lead them to someone else. In an investigation like that, there's no stone uncovered and they just go anywhere and everywhere and see what the pot shakes out. And uh, I thought, I'll be all right. And it, I, I weren't quite sure at the time with Spackman and that, and I was thinking, I know this fella. 
and I knew the names that were flying around. The two fellas that were interviewing me, playing good cop, bad cop, you know, sitting there like, oh, crap. And uh, it just didn't feel right at the time, but you're young, you're fucking naive. I got released on bail, and then I went back. I went, what did I do? How old was you when you got arrested? Um, I was 26. Mm. Young man still. Two children. When I got arrested, it seemed that things weren't right at the time because I was asking some questions for my solicitor to ask, and I wanted a, a pre-list list of questions that they were going to ask me. Because I'm saying to my sister, they've had, I don't know how long to plan these questions, and they corral you into a, a way of asking questions, a very skilled way of doing it. It can make yourself look guilty sometimes just by answering no comment. And you know, and it's just, uh, it may be hard for the, the, the listeners to understand that, but when you've viewed it or you've been party to it, you know how skilled a profession it is for these barristers. Uh, and I, I picked up on some of the questioning and such, and they took my fingerprints twice as well. And I thought that was odd. And they stopped an interview. Um, they said to take my fingerprints. So that, and they didn't. Uh, they let my bat solicitor go home, then got me out to take the prints, took him while he wasn't there, never sent the prints off to be matched whilst I was in custody. Bizarre, because you know, the first thing you want to do is, it, if you can match someone's fingerprints with an item believed to be used in that crime, then it's a significant point. And they never did any of that. And it's when stuff like that was going on, I thought, well, this doesn't make sense. Well, they're trying to get your fingerprints to put them on something to incriminate you. I've always believed that. They had the bag used in the crime um, some months before they came knocking on my door, which means the prints on the bag didn't bring them to me. Okay, They were brought to me by a police informer called Roger Vincent, who was having confidential chats with the police in relation to supplying information and having his charges dropped. And we've got all of that in writing and Vincent's custody record where he signs it in five places and he's requesting to speak to the police. So this is all bona fide. It's in the book fit up and fight him back, which sets the case out quite clearly. And there's never been any legal issues there from anybody because they can't because it's true. Um, so I realised pretty much uh, at the police station that things weren't right. Uh, and then, as you know, I got rearrested and charged with murder. What did that day feel like and where were you? They arrested me at home. Um, previously, it was, I was saying Hexham. Brought down at great speed, you know, flashing lights and armed police all the way from Newcastle. And then I got arrested at home again under the same conditions, only this time they phoned me up and said, come out, um, which is better than them coming crashing through your door with children in the house. Uh, I've always been very grateful for that. Not that grateful to them, but thankful that that never happened, that my children had to witness that and be you know, crashing doors and blokes running in with flashlights and guns. It's terrible. Took me off, charged me, and uh, whisked me up into Watford and then straight into Woodhill. Woodhill and then into the block. Come and got me from the block, whisked me off the bloody Belmarsh Special Secure Unit. Again, it was all like uh, Nazi war camp prison type stuff, you know, like 
big lights, fences, barbed wire, prison within a prison with its own wall. Being walked up to the prison with police dog either side and armed police taking you there. And you're thinking, what is going on here? It is, you know, it's a lot to take in when you think, I don't know what's going on here, like for bloody, I ain't never been party to this type of treatment before. Well, been arrested, but uh, never charged and put into the units. So it was all new to me. Did you have faith that your innocence would save the day at that point? No. You didn't? No. You felt it was going wrong, seriously wrong? Yeah, based on the evidence, chain of events, could never work out why the police came to me. The line of questioning, uh, it wasn't stuff that brought them to me it was stuff that they had investigated there and then during my arrest like um i've got my children's fingerprints off some drawings matched the fingerprints to prints in the car um so up until that point of arresting me they didn't have this information and like i say it was a confidential chats that from roger vincent that brought me in my direction so like i said i wasn't arrested to the evidence that they had investigated and collected it was based on an informer saying kevin lane so them 14 days when they bailed me and they came back and arrested me, they'd have been off getting their information, getting their evidence to, or their circumstantial evidence to arrest me. Uh, so it worried me that I was arrested on circumstantial evidence or what they told the court that was evidence in that uh, to get me remanded, they told the magistrate there was a thumbprint and it had nitroglycerin on. There was no thumbprint with nitroglycerin on, but in terms of that, it was enough to get me reminded because it's uh, it's a fire uh, chemical, isn't it, for uh, weapons or ammunition? Um, and dinotrolin in the other one, isn't it? So it's those two. That got me reminded. And I knew that to be false, so I knew things were wrong then. At this point in your story, what did you know about the death of the person you were getting charged for? Did you know the circumstances of it, how he died or anything? No, I've seen it uh, on the news. And that was it. I was, I wasn't uh, aware of him. Did at some point you have to get the discovery that um, detailed how he died? That came out in the interview. Quite gruesome when you're seeing uh, pictures and that. And uh, I didn't really look at him. To be honest with you, I just uh, no, I don't want to look at him. It was gruesome. So. Um, when during interv the interview and um, the line of question, you can tell you that uh, where they're going, but you never can really understand it because you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, do you? No. So was the guy shot? Was he strangled? What was the method of death? He was shot with a, a pump-action shotgun. And was that an instant fatality? Yeah, it was, yeah. And did he have enemies? Bob McGill was a hard man. And there's no mistaking about that. And his game was, um, he'd look after you if you needed looking after. Or you might become your partner if you needed a partner. So with that, it's a game where you can't be anybody's fool. Because you've got to keep others at bay, maybe. And uh, that was his game. So was he in a similar profession to yourself? Were you like, you know, the pubs, you giving them 50, they give you 50 quid? That I would say it's completely different. I was I had contracts with breweries. Bob McGill would have had a contract with a, 
a landlord, uh, this is in your best interest, that type of thing. And um, mine was more, mine was legit. His was more um, local, shall we say. So he probably racked up some enemies over the years in that business. They said in the, in the trial that he had many enemies. And there was many people that uh, weren't upset at, at the, they didn't say upset, but they didn't, uh, they weren't at a loss. How did you adapt to Belmarsh? God, well, you, you become, prison gives you character, <sighs> you know, <sighs> character building, shall I say. And uh, you go into a bleak, sterile area. I mean, you think, bloody hell, like, completely different, the unit. How you got to live, take your clothes off all the time, strip searched, all the time. I think, please, I ain't been nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't been nowhere. You made me take my clothes off four times. You're a pervert. I know you are. <laughs> 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 have you been checked out, have you? <laughs> so that, that was for, God, I've got to keep taking my clothes out. So they'd x-ray your clothes, okay, and they'd put them in what's called a sterile area. So I've got a visit with you tomorrow. And it's closed screen or triple category A. So you're not coming into contact with anybody, right? You're behind the screen. I've got to give you clothes for the visit two days before. Get your x-ray, put them in a bit of plastic, and I come into a room, take all my clothes off again, and put these clothes on because they were sterile. Take them off after the visit, give them back to you. They'll be x-rayed again, and then give them back to me. You're thinking, that, that type of behaviour or treatment, you think, what must they think I'm doing? Take some getting used to. Whitemore unit, uh, rules and regulations, you live on the landings on the mainstream prison. It's completely different. If you're high risk, you get checked every hour. Um, but exceptional risk, you're getting checked every 20 minutes or every half hour. And they come to your cell door and check in. So, you know, you're forever looking like this. You don't realise it years later until you come off the category A. If you're ever looking behind you. Um, that takes getting some used to, thinking that someone's staring at you all the time. And then turn the light on all night whilst you're lying in bed asleep. It wakes you up. So there's no peace then, basically. No peace. So I had two deadbolts on the outside of my cell and a chub padlock. Yeah. So And that cell had to be opened in another room outside of the unit for security. So I, don't, I never really understood what the chub padlocks were for. I'm not Houdini. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it takes something to get out of that, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, and the regime was very difficult, of course. It is difficult. It's very intense. What was your sleeping schedule like? Well, there's no sleep really, Sean, in those places. It's not a noise. Helicopters flying over you all the time. Um, it's a broken sleep. It's very stressful. You've got banging and clattering. The door goes, the gate goes. Uh, and you, early on, I said to you about being, you know, it's a pressure cooker. So I was over... We got taken out of the unit because the unit had to have some security issues uh, installed. Not issues, but upgraded. So I remember this Kanga was coming through the gates, bang, in every gate. And it was like five o'clock in the morning, as loud as he could. So I'd been in the unit now some time, hadn't seen the kids. Um, things weren't going right with the evidence. The police weren't disclosing what they should have done. There's clearly was getting broken evidence. You could, the, the chain of what he was given, it was bitty. 
there was exhibits missing and stuff. So it was very stressful. You know, you're going into a, a, a battle and you're underprepared and you, you know that you're not giving you everything. So this screw was making a load of noise. Um, and I said, Kevin, like, give it a break, will you? And they just said, I'll do what I want, he says. And that's very difficult when you're living in a prison environment. If people say, you know, I'll just do what I want, mate. I will wake up at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it took some getting used to. Yeah, you don't strike me as being the kind of person who likes to be told what to do. That must have been very frustrating, to say the least. You have to accept it at some points, okay? But you you, you don't like being told what to do when it's, um, I say, do it all else. So you've got serious charges, and what is your legal representation? Is it something that the state's appointing, or has your family got you a lawyer, or...? No, I I paid for a lot of investigations myself outside of that. People going to Spain and bits and pieces and coming back, but I was uh, public funded. Which always amazes me because you'll have a prosecution team of hundreds of police. There were 75 police involved in my investigation alone. Um, endless CPS workers and officials and such. And yet they give you a budget to work on to defend yourself. This is what I'm saying. It is theatre. Whoever has the most money, of course, is going to put on the best theatre show. They give you a budget and they spent millions. Millions. Taxpayers' money. Millions. Uh, coercing a trial. Like forcing it. Corralling it, in a way. Putting me triple category A to a helicopter is above the van when I go to court. Armed police in the court. Going everywhere... Bumped what? around in, a, in a, a vehicle, going round and round about the wrong way, being slung about like this, honestly. Weren't they linking information to the media that you were like the country's most dangerous hitman or something? They, any propaganda, to, so you're sitting on the jury and you're going, blimey, this is what they're saying about him. Uh, and then they have the 24-hour armed guard on the jury members. You, you cannot tell me that they never not you know spoke to them or formed a bond where... What was it? The uh, what's the terminology they used for the, the there was that hostage situation in the Olympic Games? What was it? The um, something syndrome, Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome, and uh, you end up becoming friends with your takers, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> How long were you on pre-trial before the trial? I was on remand. I went up in November, so I went from January to November, ten months. 10 months. Yeah. What did you form defence strategies over that period? You're still chasing evidence. You haven't been disclosed evidence, so you're working with what you've got, and it is only a line of questioning. You know, although my barrister felt like he didn't want to feel like he was attacking the police to show that they were lying and as if we, we were gripping at straws. I was only charged in the end, as you know, with circumstantial evidence by the time it came to court. So I didn't feel like we were clutching the straws. I think if someone is lying, you should be shown that they are lying. And then if they're going to lie over a small fact, you should be asking them what else they might be lying over. Uh, and he didn't want to do that. And it worried me when we knew things like the Ben Copper in my case, Spackman. He went to prison for four years for stealing £160,000 of confiscated money from the police fund. Um, and quite uh, complex com uh, fraud he uh, conducted there. To a seasoned forster is what his sentencing judge said. Um, 
I forget what I was going to say. No, what was you so, wouldn't that open it up for a lot of people to get their cases overturned that he'd worked on? They reviewed 22 cases and said that none were found wanting. Uh, a case of Khan and Bashir went back to uh, the, the CCRC after being refused by Hertfordshire Police, and they had their conviction referred back to the Court of Appeal and squashed. And it was alarming in there what Spackman had been got, got up to. More so, that features the details of Khan and Bashir in my book, and it was replicated in my case and that of... Um, his own case, Spackman, where he was conducting the same mythology in crime. And it's interesting to see when you've got it factually. It's not like you just suppositional, or you saying things. You've got it in front of you, black and white and legal documents. It's very powerful. But Was the dishonest informant, was that come about through him? The dishonest informant come through through Spackman. Spackman and Vincent were, they had a history. Vincent gave me evidence against a gentleman called O'Donnelly in uh, Ireland in uh, 1992, I believe it was, and he got him uh, 16 years life sentence. Oh. He turned informer on him. He was visiting him in prison, getting notes passed to him from uh, Donnellan, and he was going back and handing them to Spackman. Oh, yeah. So they had a relationship well before me. Um, Vincent, he, he wasn't charged on that. He was acting as a go-between. But Smith got 180 hours community for kidnapping, wounding, Section 18, okay? And he got 180 hours community service for that. And Donnellan got bleeding 16 years, ended up serving 19 in the end. Oh, because of Smith and Vincent are working with the police again. All right, so as you're approaching trial then, how does that feel to you? I didn't feel we were ready for trial because I just knew evidence was missing. Uh, and I didn't feel very hopeful. You feel like they've got you this far. You've been stuck here all these months. They've not realised they've made a mistake and they're going to release you. And you find out that, you know, you are going to trial and uh, in a very short space of time, you're either going to be let free or... You're going to be spending a long time in prison, and it's daunting. What was the mental state of your family and your parents at that point? Father had passed away. Uh, my family, uh, they're worried. Kids, obviously, was a big factor in that, not seeing the children, seeing once. Um, Spackman was being a bit, oh, bit of a devil before the trial. He was visiting like the mother of my child. He went to the house and uh, knocked on the door and, you know, passed comments to her. He phoned her up twice. He turned up at her work. So he was applying depression in all areas. What kind of comments? Like unsavoury comments? going to arrest her. He was going to arrest her? Yeah, he said, we might arrest you yet and charge you. And she wasn't aware of that. He couldn't do that. But um, it had a lot of pressure on him because she moved several times prior. By the time I come to, I got convicted, she moved. Uh, before I got convicted, she moved again, you know, because of the pressure. So it was very stressful. Going into trial then, how many days was it? 11 days. I got, on the first one, I got 21 days and 11 days. Second one was 11. So two trials. All right, first trial then, what were the highs and lows of the first trial? (sighs) 
I can't say there was many highs. Yeah. Um, any glimmers of hope? None. No, it was just all none negative. None. I said to my mother over the phone, "Look, I'm going to get a guilty here, so you better prepare yourself for it." Um, <gasps> what did she say? Well, no, don't. It won't be like that. When you know that details that are being placed in front of the jury are incorrect and false, it doesn't leave you much hope. Uh, there was things taking place during the hearing which didn't make sense. Um, we'd known that Spackman had uh, had inside information about the jurying room. I didn't notice at the time. I found it out after trial. But my legal team was aware that Spackman knew the divide, the split, guilty or not guilty, in the jury room. Now, he should never have known that. It's sacrosanct and it's, it's, uh, it's privileged information. He told my, my solicitor the split in the corridor outside the court. So there was a lot of stuff taking place, Sean, that didn't make sense to me. And that alone worried me then, because you think, she's never been here. When you looked at the jury, could you read the, you know, perceptions of what was going on? No. I felt that the foreman was a police officer. Because um, at that level of security, you will find that your jury are selected, and then you will select from that jury. Um, and now, as you know, you can have police on a jury. I don't believe that's so right. I think they should be impartial. I don't think their police expertise is needed because I do think they're still biased. But you never know. In some cases, it, it may work. But uh, I believe that the police officer in that instance was there for one purpose only, um, for a guilty. And although I had a hung jury, of course, in the first trial, the second one was uh, I got a guilty. But again, that was after... Some hours deliberating, and there was someone arguing in there for another hung jury. And if I'd have been more skilled or, say, weathered at the skilled prosecutor's questioning and the way they corral you, as I said earlier, um, I may have fared better myself, but I didn't fare too well with the questioning, and I think I could have done better. What's it like to be on the stand? Very difficult. You know, the police come running into the court with guns. They set the alarms off, things like that. Um, very difficult. Police come running into the court with guns, setting yeah. the alarms off. Yeah, set the alarms like off. Like to try to disrupt the proceedings. This causes worry, doesn't it, for the jury? Can you imagine what they thought? I nearly hit the deck myself. More theatre. I thought, then, I don't know how you're going to bleed and shoot. You ain't shooting me. Even more theatre. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and then. How long were you on the stand? A couple of days couple of days yeah was that just completely mentally exhausting yeah it is because i mean they go to uh they go to classes to learn how to present themselves to the jury don't they um acting lessons we don't have that in defending ourselves. you're in your late 20s did you say yeah i was 26 so um all the hype and the the, the security and that um, you probably think if I say what, one thing wrong, this whole case is gone. Yeah, and you I'm may done. say something daft because you're just so worried about bleeding, you know, just not panicking or coming across stressed. I wasn't ma no match for the skilled prosecutor. Uh, 26, almost a kid, aren't you, really? Just a young person. Yeah, and if you're not uh, weathered in that, in that uh, scene... It's, uh, if you're standing on a stage and you've got a axe, I mean, it takes people a while to become, you know. 
How did they try to trip you up? Um, no, I mean, that's tripped me up. They said things that, uh, that I never had any money. So I was having money sent to me in Spain when I was out there living, but I've always had money. I didn't buy my houses, my first house whilst I was in prison if I was skinned. I didn't buy my first flat when I was 18 if I was skinned. And, uh, I mean, I got a wage, de uh, a tax bill demand of £27,000 when I was 21, final demand. So I had earned money. Um, but they tried to make out that I was had no money and I came home and committed the murder for money. So any records that were sent to me went missing. And I mentioned them in my first evidence to say, look, I had money sent to me via Thomas Cook and Barclays Bank and so on and so forth. And I was the Barclays Bank money was sent to this person in uh, Tenerife who gave it to me out of his bank account. Because I, I don't know if you ever sent money to yourself abroad, but it was taking like sometimes 14 days. And you think you know they're holding on to your money just to get a bit of interest on it or the rate goes up. And that happened to me once. And I thought, sod that. So the next thing you know, the, the people that... Mr. Battelle, who I sent money to, uh, by way of example, in, in a bank in England, he gave me out of his shop takings out there. So it's money laundering of a sort. It's just, uh, that's what they would call it, of course, wouldn't they? But they hid all of that. I knew they was lying by doing that. Because they needed a motive, so now they've got a financial motive. So what was the role that they created for you then? Did they say that you'd been hired to make money to do this hit? Is that Was that the... Theory. Yep. Okay. And then they hid um, exculpatory evidence that showed that you actually had money. Did they hide anything else? They hid the Roger Vincent confidential chats. Um, they hid statements that um, people had made in relation to the vehicle used in the murder and who they got that vehicle from. They said they got it from Roger Vincent and David Smith. Well, those statements were suppressed and I never got them until 2007 which is some years later, if I'd have had them for trial, I would have said to the, the jury, well, members of the jury, it's, this gentleman here says that he, he was given a car by two people who, who aren't Kevin Lane. So I'd like to explore that aspect of the investigation. And they suppressed all of that because it would have brought evidence into the case, that the trial that took the case elsewhere. Uh, and there was much of that. And the book highlights that and sets it out clearly for... Uh, people to read and they said you know it's well written well read easy to follow the best book they've read this year and i've had many of them so i'm pleased that the book will answer so many questions for people out there and already i'm learning that it's doing its job and it's bringing recognition to my conviction a wrongful conviction um and lets people really know what went on as duncan campbell nick hopkins and jamie dowd have said the criminal justice system no. And the link is going to be in the description box below this video if people want to get the book. And I'm, you know, like I said earlier on, it is compulsively readable and very well written. So, did they have a theory as to who hired you to do the hit on this person? Never. Uh, never disclosed that. Never disclosed that? No. Well, did they have any theories of any co alleged co conspirators? The original suspects were Roger Vincent and David Smith, who was arrested for the murder. They was arrested by Spackman. They were arrested before or after you were arrested? Before. So they was arrested before. Vincent engaged on his confidential chats almost immediately with the police. 
uh, and sent them in my direction. And Smith was obviously released without charge, whereas prior to that, they was both going around calling themselves Ronnie and Reggie. And I always wondered which one was Ronnie, all right? So, but they were telling people that and flashing off guns in pubs and things like that. There was other evidence that definitely pointed it in their direction, i.e. the gentleman who got caught with a car used in the murder said he got off of those two. But none of this evidence was brought to trial. And it, it's strange that, Sean. So they got a pass because one of them became a police informant, basically. Started straight away. I put him in my direction. He raised some issues with the police that are still unsolved, and he, he said that Kevin Lane did those, and it was other murders. And in his confidential chats, he named me for three, three murders in total. And up until that point, I'd never been questioned about a murder. Yeah. So, and... He tried to put you forward for three murders. That's what he tried to put me forward for. But in their eyes, they thought, well, these are unsolved. Uh, really? Kevin Lane bit, does a bit of boxing, like in the ring, ducks and dives, got a security firm. Of course, did it with Spackman. At the time, I didn't know. I was the fall guy. I was going anyway. And that was their exit. And their exit was me. First trial, did you say, was 21 days? Yep. How long did the jury take to deliberate? Uh, two and a half. Two and a half days? Mm. What's going through your head during those two and a half days, and can you describe what they came back and said? <clears throat> there wasn't many. There wasn't much come back from the, um, the jury. It was more directions from the judge in terms of you can find him guilty by 10 to 2 if you wish. Um, they did come back and ask a question. Can we find the defendant guilty if we don't think he committed the murder? <laughs> so, but do you know what, Sean? I feel they thought that um, there's aspects of the case that show that I was, I'm, in their eyes, involved in the murder in terms of, in the boot of the car, there was a black bin liner. That black bin liner had a, finger, a handprint on it. And again, this was never disclosed uh, I wasn't arrested due to this. This evidence came about months and months after I was uh, arrested. But they say that that print is consistent with gripping a pump-action shotgun inside that bag. And they told the jury that. Yeah, and I'm sitting there thinking, I haven't grabbed a gun in a, in a bag, so that's wrong. They're lying. There was a, uh, they said that there was nitroglycerin in the boot of the car, in, in the bag, in a pipe as well, and that... Uh, that was consistent with having a gun or spent ammunition in the, inside the, the bag. I knew they was lying. And then uh, they put that before the jury. D damning evidence, you know, when they're lying. Uh, and all, and they, so by them saying that, can we find the defendant guilty if we don't think he was guilty of, of committing a murder? They thought, well, he's gripped a gun in the bag. He must have something to do with it. So it's false and fabricated evidence, I think, that got me convicted. And that question there, you can guess all day long what you think that question related to. And I might be miles off of it, but trying to fathom out on a, uh, how they decided which way, you often question the, the questions itself that they come back with. What was it like when they came back to announce the verdict? I, I always thought I was getting guilty. You thought you were going to get guilty right yeah, then? Yeah, I thought I was getting guilty, yeah. So when, like, what does this, a guy stand up and say, hung jury, how does it work? The, the judge turns to the jury and asks the jury members if they've come to a verdict. And is it unanimous or uh, at least 10 to 2 of you? 
majority. Uh, they say we yes we have or no we haven't. Um, okay, and then he he asked him a question and he turns around and says, "Can you please answer if the defendant is guilty or not guilty?" And uh, he said guilty. And it's there's been obviously many people in my position there, but court two is quite uh, daunting. It's very old. It's wooden panelled, which gives it a bit of creakiness to it and a judge sitting there with his wig and the armed police and such and you think guys I'm bleeding out it's very daunting so they came back and said guilty but hung jury so what does that mean then no they had a hung jury in the first one guilty in the second oh okay okay alright so how how um, what period of time was there between the first and the second trials how long November to March so four months when you got the hung jury verdict and you had adjusted to thinking you were going to get guilty, did you see that as a victory? What, that I'd got my head around it? You thought you were going to get guilty, but it came back hung jury. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. Did you think that was a victory then for you? Did it give you hope? Yeah, it did, yeah. It, it naturally does that. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. It has to give you a boost, and it did. So did that give you confidence then and when, that when you went back you might not get a guilty or were you as equally convinced you were going to get a guilty again as you were the first time around? Uh, I had to change solicitors uh, before my first trial. Um, and I had a new solicitor started six weeks before my trial um, was due to start. The murder case. And I had to meet him through a screen. Couldn't touch, holding up paperwork stuff. And at the time, Michael Howard... He had made it legal to tape, uh, listening to your professional visits with your legal team. As long as you didn't use it to influence your trial. Well, of course, I've never agreed with that. It just doesn't make sense. So I had to go through all of that, knowing that they're listening to your visits. You're not getting the evidence disclosed to you, which you're entitled to. So it's uh, it's biased to begin with. as. The statements that were disclosed, Leonard Bennett's statement saying that Roger Vincent and David Smith gave him the car, I should have had them for trial, not blooming in 2007. And I was convicted in 1996. Come on, it's just it just shows. So I was troubled at my second trial because things were still going wrong, but you always have that glimmer of hope, don't you? Keep going. But when I got convicted of it, I, uh, I, I turned to the jury and said they made a terrible mistake. I never did this. When you are convicted of a crime you haven't committed and you protest your innocence, is that then used against you to aggravate your sentence because you're not showing remorse? Yeah, it is, yeah. It is, yeah. And I refuse to do a lot of courses in prison where you had to discuss the index offence. But I said, I'll address my offending behaviour that you, you can deem suitable for previous con convictions. Um, but if you don't put your hands up, you'll do a lot longer in prison. And I, I did two years over my sentence, but I was very lucky. Um, some paperwork came to light in my case that it's ex it expedited my, my category A review to two weeks. And, uh, I was downgraded two weeks after this paperwork came to light. Well, prior to that, it's taken three years to get to the court of appeal or 
uh, you know, challenging it legally. So many obstacles and such. And then all of a sudden, you're a hot potato. Some paperwork comes to light that questions your conviction. And they chuck you out of the system. And they get you through the system at a great pace of knots because they don't want to release you from prison saying this was a miscarriage of justice. When you found guilty and they put you back in prison, did they automatically put you on suicide watch for a sentence of that magnitude? They do the first night you get convicted. What was that like? I don't know, I slept like a log, really. A bloody uh, night nurse gave me a sleeper. It's just a burr cell, is it? Burr cell, light on, pretty much all night. There's no curtain. Cause, um, there's no curtain in the cell, and you've got lights outside it, so it's very bleak existence. Um, but if you got, she gave me a sleeping tablet to help, and while I was gone, you wake up in the morning, and you wake up, and then you realise where you are. Did the shock come back? It does, yeah. It doesn't for that split second when you wake, and then bang, you think, God, I wish I'd stayed asleep. How long did it take you to adjust mentally to accept the sentence? I fought the system for years. Um, what you do, you direct your anger, don't you? Uh, you don't realise that, but you are directing it at someone, uh, and it's normally at each other or someone who crosses you or who may be quite deserving of a bleeding good hiding because there's a few of them in the system, Sean, isn't there? They deserve <laughs> a good hiding and a bath. <laughs> I'm not sure in what order. I shouldn't say that, of course. I'm a reformed character, but... Um, <laughs> I don't know, but it took me years, years. I had a death in, whilst I was away, I had a few deaths, but uh, my girlfriend at the time got killed in a car crash. And she, she was a lovely girl. Bloody hell. Used to like go to church and, you know, sweet girl. That oh. was hard. I couldn't go to the funeral, obviously, because of the, the security with the guns and such, and that it would have ruined the funeral. I didn't go to the chapel arrest, but that sh sh uh, shook me, really. Were your kids able to visit you? I didn't see my boys for nine years. That changed me. When early on, when I said character building, it's it's it gives you character to case harden you with things in life that they hurt still, but you can expect the inevitable more because the inevitable happens in prison a lot. Were you at Belmarsh um, during these early years? Then after the suicide watch cell, did you go back to Belmarsh? I was in Belmarsh for um, till April. I got convicted in March. Uh, 21st, I was gone on the 10th of April to Whitemore Special Secure Unit. It's amazing how certain facts just stay in your head. And I landed in Whitemore, which was, it had just been reopened after the escape, the IRA escape. So I'd been in Belmarsh on my mind with many of the hierarchy of the criminal underworld in England at the time where people used to go to work to commit a crime and put some, uh, I'd say, research into it. Um, Kenny Collins, Hatton Garden Burglar. You know, they researched that bit of work and, you know, it's a, a good bit of work what they did. And, you know, they make films out of that type of stuff now. So let's face it, a lot of people like it. It's a big industry. Uh, but they did it with the way they did it and you know, people take their hats off to them in a sense. Of course they do. But um, when they put me with the IRA upstairs before I went to trial, they told me about the unit and they'd give me, because they escaped out of it. So what to expect, but you never expect until you get into it, like the, the dead bolts on the outside of the door and the steel caged roof and 
the checks all the time and the madness with the visits and, and you get a phone box inside, it's like a bungalow. So there's if there's seven of us, you've got an hour's phone calls, you've got like nine minutes of call. That's it, to get on the phone to your children. And for instance, my my little son, well, he's, he's not little no more, Tommy, um, you'd be sitting there, Sean, and you'd have headphones on and you'd have a, a tape recorder on. You'd push to tape record the call and then you'd write down any notes that you're listening to. So Tommy says to me, because I could talk to my children, you know, I, I had a good relationship with my kids where they felt that like they needed to tell me something they could uh, and didn't need to put hands on them, but it worked very well, the relationship I had with them. And he says to me, sometimes it can, I say it worked very well. It actually did me the world of good, but it could have been a better timing. So he says to me, Daddy said, and you're only on the phone for nine minutes. Daddy says, can I ask you something out of the blue? I thought, yeah, of course you can, son. I said, yeah, go on, son, of course you can. He says, when you look at uh, sexy women, he says, does your willy stand up? Because mine does. He said, and so does Aaron's, his brother's. <laughs> <laughs> I burst out laughing. He was seven, right? I burst out laughing. I said, I'm not laughing at you, son. I says, I said, I'm laughing with you. I said, of course it does. I said, all the time. <laughs> there was a prison officer sitting there and I see him burst out laughing with the thing. So... Yeah, prison gives you character, but getting used to them, it took me years. Who were the highest profile prisoners you bumped into or made friendships with? We were all in there. We we're all, uh, there's a lot of high profile people. If you live in prison, you get to know everybody. Um, you don't, I mean, I would talk to you if no one knew you, because I might find something interesting about you. Might be you kept pigeons or whatever, you know. Oh, really? Oh, I like fantail pigeons because they can they conduct acrobats in the air and they're white and they spread their wings. So you could have a dovecot in your garden and then in the summer and you've got these pigeons performing acrobats <laughs> for you. So I would talk to you, all right? So uh, I've mixed with everybody, but uh, not because of who they were. They either, you know, you either got on with them or you didn't, and I'm not an arse licker, and I won't hang about with someone because you're six foot six or or this or you or that. If I don't like you, I won't knock about with you. It seems like there's certain prisoners at the public have got an endless fascination with the craze, Charles Bronson. Um, did you bump into any of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie's in the book. I mean, hopefully he gets out. What excitement has Charlie got in a cell 23 hours a day? He will kick off every now and then. You put him in Dartmoor in a, leading on a farm, give him his paintbrushes and that, Charlie will be happy days. Leave him alone. <laughs> you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. Oh. But yeah, I met Charlie. You met loads of people in there. I think anybody you could ever mention, like I said earlier on, uh, the unit had all the hierarchy in there, Kenny Collins and such, and um, anybody that you probably had a book written about them, whether it's Colombian cartel. I tell you who was there, Frank the Strangler, Franco Di Carlo, in terms of uh, he was the Italian boss of bosses. And he was only five foot two, right? And uh, Frankie Quinn used to give him this cream to rub on his feet to make him taller. <laughs> 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 and we used to get little wedges, right? And cut like, you know, like door stops, right? <laughs> and put them in his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I did mess about in there. We did have a laugh as well as, you know, a lot of terrible times. But Did you see Bronson kick off? No, no never see Charlie kick off. Did you settle into a fitness routine? Yep. You need structure in prison. If you've got structure, 
Yeah, it kills your time a bit. I didn't have a TV. I refrained from TV. I just didn't feel that they were beneficial to me. Clicking all the time. Read a good book. But I worked on the case. I mean, I wrote a lot of letters, um, over 10,000 letters and uh, documents and such, compiling documents to present to the uh, Criminal Cases Review Commission or your barrister or TVs or reporters, whoever. I mean, I'd say 10,000 letters is quite a few. Um, but I trained a lot in prison. I was Jim Audley for many years, which was good. And you're training with the best of the best. Believe me, PTIs, GB, uh, CrossFit training teams, Olympic coaches. So you can get the best education if you want to learn about the gym and how to train properly. And of course, the inmates, they're pretty, they're full of testosterone. It's like you say, it's a jungle, tough cookies. Survival of the fittest. So they train harder. Blimey, prisoners can train hard. And they break a lot of records. So, yeah, I did. I threw myself into my gym and my case and some studies. Educated myself. Wrote the book in 2004. Um, it always evolves a book, Sean, doesn't it? it you, you chop and change it. They call it killing your baby, didn't they, when they take pieces yeah. out. They say, Don't slash my baby. Yeah, um, but then what they take out, you can do another book with. Definitely, but you don't think of that at the time, do you? Or you can put them back in the second edition, like I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, time. It, if you look back, you think it's gone quick. If you look forward, you think bloody hell. I got to about ten years, and I thought enough's enough. But enough of this. But enough of what goes on within the prison system battling to come off the book all the time or such, you know. If you come in an innocent man, then the psychologist, as far as they're concerned, there's something wrong with you. You won't sit down in front of them, an innocent man, and they say there's nothing wrong with him. Because in their eyes, you've been found guilty by the courts, which therefore says there is something wrong with you. So they will say, you need to do this course. And you're sitting there going, but I'm innocent. No, there's something wrong with you. And you say, what have you based that on then? So your conviction. I said, it's nothing based on what you found in me then. And that was difficult. So you're fighting the system all the time. Then you're fighting the inmates, the, the bollocks that goes on, whether it's someone's come and robbed that person or, you know, you get someone on there who's taking liberties a bit. Um, and you don't want to get involved in that. But it was, I was gullible for the first few years and uh, believed that inmates should be one, um, rule of honour amongst fees and such. And then it, I went in with the old school criminals and they started going home and the new bunch came in. So I see it evolve and transform completely different. And it was, that was, you're going living in one era and then you're going into a new era. And the new era you're going into is far more aggressive and uh, divided. And the sentences were getting a hell of a lot longer. So you wasn't living amongst each other as one, harmoniously as best you could. Uh, and things settled out of, you know, as men settled things. Not boiling red-hot fat and tipping over someone's head because you've had he's moved your freezer bag or melting bottles in a, a pot and putting batteries and such in there and slinging them in someone's face. So you've gone from an old school living where of a bit of a straightener to that madness, which was like the prison in, in America, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's just mayhem, drug and gang-infested mayhem. And that's what it's become now. I think we've co we've copied the American 
everything comes over here doesn't it yeah, from america yeah just like with a delay so what was the craziest things you saw in there that went on um I should have made something up then and said, I see a fellow having a sex with a bit of liver, but I never. <laughs> <laughs> I never got to work in the kitchens. <laughs> but I did hear it happen. Because <laughs> I did hear there was an adjudication. <laughs> like the frozen chicken one I wouldn't have. <laughs> it was frozen. <laughs> when I said it was defrosted, I might have said, all right, <laughs> dirty bugger. <laughs> I'll say some terrible things in prison, like stabbings and... The oils that I'm talking about, I see that, which are tells. And Is it mostly over drug debts? No, blimey, like, you know, um, it can be a slant, an insult, uh, wrong comment. Um, you, can, you can have a fight anywhere in prison at any time with any person, okay, for no reason of your own. And like I said, that person's had a terrible day or he's paid a few quid to have a tear up with you or there's many reasons in prison. And like I say, you don't have had to done anything. To, to try to avoid fights is something you can become quite good at, circumventing it. So I found by staying off the landings right, and pushing my door up, you're shutting the trouble out. You don't want to hear what everyone's bickering about until I, I remove myself from that. Um, I see some terrible things in there, like I say, that um, coffins on the landings is a very sad thing to see. A coffin being wheeled off the landing and your next-door neighbour's died. Heart attack, massive heart attack. I used to ride a bike all the time before he came to prison, played uh, table tennis every night, didn't smoke anymore and had a massive heart attack. That's sad. I see a gentleman who was, he converted to Islam and he had all of his intestines cut out, Lazarus. And I see this member of staff going to his cell door. And by then I was on, uh, I stopped getting nicked for fighting, hitting staff and fighting with a mufti and stuff like that. Um, the riot squad, should I say, or squat squad. So I had a settled period, and I was matured, I suppose, and, and, and accepted my sentence in terms of how I was going to fight it. Uh, and I see this member of staff go to the cell door. Open the door, put it down. Next day, open the door, put the food down. I thought, that's that Lazarus, isn't it? You don't really talk to many people. Does all this mad dancing when he's warming up. Just he seems a bit eccentric. So can you open that door? Miss, I want to see that fellow in there. He's had an operation and he they cut all his intestines away. There was nappies on the floor where he couldn't get out of bed to go to the toilet. There was days worth of food on his table that had mould on it. Right? And no one had been in there to take care of him. Right? Staff-wise, I mean. I went fucking mental, excuse my French, honestly, to see that man in that state. And uh I became his, I, I, not naturally, I just went in and helped him every day, got him out in the sun in the summer in a wheelchair, cleaned all of his cell, got his dinners for him and that. Just because you like, felt compelled to help this man. And, um, like, I would talk to anybody. So, and sitting down with him, talking to him, uh, prison teaches you a lot, you know. Like I say, talk to a man who does pigeons. You know, everyone's got something interesting to say if you get to know someone. Um, and that was probably one of the worst things I'd ever seen, let a man in a cell with cancer, which had been cut away, and not fed him or take care of him after a major operation. And that was in Whitemore. And there was a, a, a screw there. Uh, 
and they used to call her Galon out of Planet of the Apes because she was real bleeding. She was prettier, Galon, you know, but she had that way about her. And the staff used to call her that. Don't forget, you're in prison. They don't mix their words in there. May more a bit more political now, but in there they want. But she was a nasty piece of work. And it was her that was putting the bleeding food down in the cell. Couldn't give a monkeys about him dying in there. So yeah, that was probably the worst. What about self-harm, suicide? Seen all of that. Throats cut out. Yeah. Slashing their arms down. Slashing them down. Uh, they can just pierce it and squirt it and bleed. Cross is a lot worse. Obviously, you can sever the arteries. But seeing all of that, even down here and the neck, you know, and just things like that. Sad. Did you see drug culture change over the years? Um, you did because you'd gone from the old cannabis where people would have a spliff, far more happier places then. The heroin came in, not as much of it, of course, because people didn't like heroin on the landings, thank God. Devil's dust. But then the spice came in, and it comes in with like a different era. So the old schools go home, we like smoking a bit of uh, Rocky. Uh, Michael Howard introduced um, basic standard enhanced regime for different level prisoners, how much money you could spend on your canteen. Of course, so then you've got to decide between having £15 worth of canteen, whether it be a coffee, tea bag, a bit of toothpaste, uh, mouthwash, something that that might make your time a bit easier. Even down to washing powder that makes your clothes smell nice and a bottle and all. But you've got to buy that on a budget. So if you've got £15 to buy that or £15 to put on the phone to talk to your children who are missing their daddy for whatever reason, it doesn't mean that they should be punished. What a lot of these lads do are a drug deal. So they brought in a system to stop the hierarchy but count, uh, 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 caused a hierarchy. The people started dealing in a lot more heroin, then the, the spice, and then the landing changed completely. It's terrible drug, that. There's so much profits in drug dealing. Does that corrupt some of the guards that they would bring it in? Mm. Well, the obvious question to that is yes. There's always going to be a level of corruption in any society. Um. More so now that they've taken away smoking. Bizarre, because what these lads do, they just get on them vapes, and they're on the vapes like two or three a day, some of them. And they're meant to be, people say they're not as damaging, but I tell you what, they have trouble breathing doing the circuits when they're on them vapes, be for sure, because I witness it. So anybody who says they smoke vapes they don't do you no harm, they do. Go and run a mile right, after you started smoking them for a month and see how you get on. Watch yourself cough. Um... So they don't smoke the tobacco, but smoke the vapes, and they go out having a habit of doing this all the time. And they do it with a cigarette. And I think they've learned they smoke more on the vape than they would do on a normal cigarette, because they're always doing this because of the taste. So when they go out, what have they been doing is practicing smoking more. Mm. So they go from 20 to bleeding 30 or 40 fags. Terrible. And you look at these silly little little things, how inflicting rules in, in prison affect people when they go home. They come into the prison, they get bang on the spice. So when they've come in and smoked a bit of hashish, can't get that, get the spice because there's good money in it, Whether whoever's bringing it in, whether it's staff or inmates or uh, visitors, 
there's great money in it and it creates a thirst where people need to quench that thirst and it's money isn't it in america you see them coming in for weed and other stupid shit and then they're injecting heroin the majority were injecting heroin yeah, yeah you'd have a, an access to needles more so um back then 20 years ago in america then the lads have got it at the moment you don't hear so much of that or it did, it did take place when i was um away but there was rarities but one person here or there and it'd be you know once in a few years now it may have changed but in america it was Epidemic. life wasn't it yeah more than half of them had hepatitis c from showing dirty needles yeah it's an absolute epidemic of hepatitis c in the um arizona state prison system state jails um so you were in belmarsh then for how long i'd spent uh 14 months in belmarsh so i went uh well march out to april yeah so and then it was white what was the one after belmarsh whitemore whitemore and where'd you go after whitemore out onto the mainstream mainstream i got moved about a lot i think i had 18 moves in four years various moves white uh, belmarsh back and forward whitemore a lot of lay downs 28 day lay downs the belmarsh unit then back to another prison why why so many moves you're angry at the system you're angry at um your conviction um i did have a lot of uh disagreements shall i say right <laughs> with people uh i'd land somewhere and there might be something about you i didn't like there's a bad smell about you and i said don't talk to me i don't want to talk to you or for instance i'd hear there's something about your crime which i didn't agree with. so I remember going to uh, a concert in Whitemore and the vicar came up to me and he says, um, do you want a ticket for the concert, Kevin? I said, Father, I said, that's very nice of you. It's a race relations concert. Race relations? Oh, okay. So also in the magazine called The Wise at the same time, they were talking about integration where everybody's mixed. And I said, that will never work. I said, you cannot have someone who is in for paedophilia or such living next door to a normal because uh, p not stands for uh not of normal criminal enterprise okay or eternity something like that. i think it's enterprise um because they're not of normal criminal enterprise they're a different mindset to us uh of how they commit their crime so you can't have them living next door to you coming in your cell and saying nice pictures they're your kids but you don't know what they're in for okay i said you'll you'll have problems so, no, I don't agree with it. The next thing you know, the vicar comes up and speaks to me, offers me a ticket. I think it's a bit strange. I've had a psychologist come up and ask me the same question. I said, I'm not having it. I will not have someone living next door to me for my own, you know, peace of mind. I can't go home and say to my family, yeah, geezer next door to me was in for this or that. And they look at you and think, really, Kevin? You, and you suffered that? So that's how I, so I used to live on my old school mall. So I've gone for this concert and I've sat down. There's, there's a few people there, right? A few people there. It was packed. And I've looked up at the band and I think, fuck, can I know him? There was a fellow on there and he, he ended up next door to me. And I'll never forget it, right? I said, right, get off the landing. I said, I don't want to be living next door to you, mate. If you're not off this landing when the door's open, I said, you'll be moved off the landing. He was involved traveling across Europe. He was Polish. Traveling across Europe, getting into the old age pensioners of that country with a gang of, uh, of, of other member gang members, torturing them for their savings and then killing them. 
I fucking, I don't want to be living against you or someone like that. <sighs> and that was in Whitemore. Yeah. Did you see the inmates get the hands on any people with unsavoury charges? Yeah, you do see it. It's prison, isn't it? So a lot of unsavoury moments take place. I wish there wasn't so much violence in prison, you know. I mean, it'd be far better. So you're bouncing back and forth in your early years because you're rebelling against things. Oh, I'm sorry, let me just finish that. I got up and walked out, by the way. I stood up in that concert and said, uh, this is for those who know what bacon means. This is bacon relations. I said, and we should be bashing them, not clapping them. And I walked out. Because I couldn't, if my family said to me, what have you done this afternoon, Kevin? I said, I've watched a, a band play full of sex offenders. Oh, God. Or protection people. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I left. <laughs> All right, so you're bouncing back and forth in your early years. Then you settle down. And does that put you down security levels then as you settle down? Are you, you able to you know, get along at the, in the lower security levels? Well, I got downgraded because of this paperwork that came to light, mm. okay? I wasn't downgraded for any other reason. It was that that caused that. And then as I went through the different security grades, you're mindful of any muck-ups as a lifer, you're going back. So, uh, yeah, the violence wasn't, it's a lot more petty violence in there, or robbing and drugs in, the, in, the, in those gaffes, but um, I enjoyed it. I found it a lot more comfortable to live. And do you have an appeal process going all this time as well? Yeah, I was still fighting the case. So did you have to go back to court here and there for the appeal? Not until I got released. Oh. The Court of Appeal ordered an investigation uh, by the, the CCRC and they said, we're not interested in what you have to say. We just want to know X, Y, and Z. Because um, the CCRC have failed me, I believe, on a number of occasions. Overworked, uh, not enough budget. Um, and they may have 40 cases, one caseworker. I mean, you just can't expect them to handle that workload. So... Um, I finally went back to the Court of Appeal once I got released from Blantyre House. And then um, it was orchestrated that way. It took years. I just, uh, it dragged out until they got me out. I don't want to release you from prison, innocent man. But on my appeal, Lord Chief Justice Rafferty, she sat at Kalisher's bed, who was the prosecutor in my case. And they were discussing setting up the Kalisher Trust, which was a trust for barristers that worked within the CCRC overviewing or overseeing miscarriages of justice. So I never stood a chance in the CCRC because I could have any one of those barristers working on my case from the Cadillac Trust. When I go up on my appeal, Lord Chief Justice Rafferty has been uh, ushered in, shall I say, at last minute's notice to sit on my appeal. Lord Chief Justice Hughes has stepped down. She was a personal friend of Cadillac. She's never going to overturn my conviction, is she? Go home and tell his children, I'll just overturn your father's biggest, biggest victory today. Oh, God. People wouldn't believe that, would they? But that's factual. Did time go faster as you got further into your sentence? In the beginning, did it seem like 20 years is forever, but then it sped up as you get closer to the gate? It does when you're getting something like um, in CCAT or DCAT conditions. In C and DCAT conditions, it goes faster. 
Yeah, a lot for even in B coming down from about sixteen years as a category A, coming off the book and going into a B cat. They asked me where I wanted to go, and uh, when I come off the cat A, I went Royal Private Prison. You know, they meant to run a lot more better than HMP, where you just sit there, not going anywhere. Private prison, it's money. So everyone that comes in, everyone's out the door. They've earned a few quid. And um, did it meet your expectations? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as good as it was when it first opened, but it was still good. Uh, and I was out the door a year, almost to the day since I'd been there, recategorized to a C cat, went to the walls, sat there for about a year again, and then went to Blantyre. But it, those years, depending on the prison, Sean, obviously, they make your time go faster or slower. Excuse me. It did go a lot quicker towards the end anyway, yeah. So all the people watching this, you know, they got a taste of your story but the only people who understand your story 100% are the people you were in there with. Did you feel that you bonded with some of the people that you were in there with and you're still in touch with any of them? I am, yeah. And, you know, people commit crime. It doesn't mean they're bad people. We've had Lord Archer and such, such and such, such in prison. You know, there's many people turn up in prison. Um, you go out, out your house, drive down the road, you kill someone by reckless driving because they run out in front of you and you're doing 35 mile an hour instead of 30 you may go to prison for that. So, yeah, I did form bonds with people that made me laugh um, and had goodness in them, manners. Uh, and you can recognise that in a lot of people. Some are good people at masking it, but you do find some good characters in prison uh, or you genuinely, you know, have a lot of time and would say affection in the right manner, of course, because <laughs> I never participated. <laughs> a lot of men have husbands and such in there. I never. Gay for the stay, that's called in America. Is that what they call it, do they? Gay for the stay. But I know a lot of gays, you know, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what, nobody's fools in either, so don't be fooled by them just because they're gay. Think they are. And, you know, in prison, in the English system, then... Uh, I know some nice people, and if they're nice people, then and you see that. But, uh, yeah, I did make some friends. Any funny stories from prison, light-hearted moments? Um, do you know, these sort of things, they, um, they come out during, you know, during like a drink or if you're having a discussion with someone, yeah. But I've had some, to sit here and maybe draw one out of the hat, I've had some, um, I don't know if you'll find them funny, but... There's been some times in prison that I've cried at in laughter, Christmas, people dancing and that. I'm not going to mention them, I have to say, because I ain't got the people's permission to, to mention them. But yeah, I've had some good times. Yeah, no names, because Christmas is like the most depressing time of the year, isn't it? You're thinking, wish I was at home, all this is going on. There's like a real change of the atmosphere. Did you, did you notice that where you were? I was always drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I was always drunk. What was, Honestly, your, what was your hooch recipe? So, I always had a drink at Christmas, and I'd be the only one in the prison a lot of the time with booze. And it was like, because they have a big lockdown looking for it. And on high security, it is a proper lockdown where it's a lockdown. Um, but I had a, uh, on my countenance eyesight, I tell no lies, I had a, um, a great place of hiding it. And I, I used to get away with it every year whatever prison I went to. So I can't divulge that, but I used to make, I'd get pure orange juice, demerara sugar, because white sugar's got bleach in it. So I didn't want it to slow the cooking process down. 
and I would use demerara sugar with a few sultanas. But you've got to check the sultanas now because they'll have a, a preservative in it and that would stop it cooking. It would mm. kill the yeast. So you learn about all this. They're like babies. You've got to treat them warm, keep them fed, and they grow up to be big and strong. <laughs> <laughs> so pure orange juice, demerara sugar, a cup of uh, teacup full of demerara sugar to every two litres. And uh, you've got to keep them warm. And let, let the pressure out. Let the pressure out. You can have breathing pipes and if you want, going through other bottles of water to take some money. But my booze, I'll never forget it. I got, um, I was in the block and I got, uh, the, the governor goes to me, I never got caught with any alcohol. I used to have parties at Christmas. So you can come to my party, but you've got to dress up. And uh, if you're going out on a Friday night, do your eyebrows, <laughs> come in, get your shirt on. And... Uh, <laughs> And we'd play the music, 70s disco dancing, and you have all the people doing all this, and, you know, funny times. But the booze is what got you into that state. Of, and I mean, absolutely got you smashed, whereas you pass out. If it was a good booze, strong. And you know, about like, I remember I got caught with that bit of booze, and the governor says, I'm going to, well, he, he found it, not on me, of course. He, he said, we believe this to be yours. That's what you're talking about. He said, I'm going to sentence you, he says, on how strong this booze is. I thought, you know what, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> right? At that time, bearing in mind it weren't finished, it was 37%. That's not bad. That was a free day, and it was still going. It had been a lot stronger on the fourth day. And um, he gave me 28 days laid down at the Belmarsh unit, 17 days in the seg for that. I thought, it's a bit harsh for a bit of drink, Governor. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favourite job? Jim Audley. What other jobs did you do? A carpentry. I went a cabinet maker, made some furniture, which was nice. Um, what kind of pay do you get these jobs? Not a lot. I was grounds cleaner on my last one when I got out, which was good. Like a womble wandering around on your own. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do press-ups off the of steps. So I worked it out. There was, depending on I could do like 500 press-ups, and a couple of hours, just 50 or each step. And if I went back around the other way, you could do some more. So you're getting in fresh air, you're training on your own. No one talking rubbish to you. I loved it. The gym already was the best job for me because it kept me busy. It took me, me frustrations and your tensions out. Sitting on the rowing machine for, like, for you know, a ridiculous amount of time, three hours in training or two hours and things like that. Mad. What were your favourite items from the inmate store? I, well, I never used to wear prison clothes. I wore my own. Um, blow up doll. Loved her. <laughs> <laughs> Trudy. <laughs> Don't I get them in America? <laughs> no, I never got that. No, I'll tell you what. Faith stored property. Bloody nice blankets. Blankets. You get a quilt and stuff like that. Um and you'd put that inside. Now they get quilts. We never used to get quilts. You get a quilt cover and you'd make the blankets the same size and, you know, put cotton for them and make them that size and put them in. So decent blankets. Did the food change over the years? Did it become skimpier? Did it scampier or skimpier? Skimpier, like less. Mm -hmm. Say that after a few drinks, <laughs> eh? <laughs> the food is, it depends where you go. You know, you get, you get very slim in some prisons very quick. And you get fed stodging crap in others. And some of the food is quite decent. You know, it's got a taste to it. Especially if you have the uh, the vegans, like the beans. You get these little white beans and red kidney beans. But 
give them to someone, right? If you would have a date, <laughs> <laughs> cook this girl these beans and go out on a date for a picnic, right? <laughs> what do you want to get up and walk off? <laughs> Good food, but reacted on you badly, especially if you're training in the gym. Right? And it's hard when you're on a rowing machine or you can't get up and things like you know. So the food could be very good, but very boisterous. What about snacks that you could buy from the inmate store? Did you have any like um, favourite snacks or candy or anything? You get most things like if in the dispersals where you're cooking, but not even Swellside, for instance. There's other prisons where you can cook now. Uh, you'll have steak. It might be from Nigeria. And you lose a few teeth chewing it. <laughs> Should be for stewing steak, really. Uh, but like I say, long latum, I'd, I'd have a pot of Chinese, squid, king prawns, cooked by a Philippine chef, good chef. Um, they were what you look forward to, having meals that you couldn't get because you was banged up. Um, you get your tuna and bits and pieces, don't you, which noodles. But I ended up eating the noodles. I eat them raw. Like crisps, <laughs> and that came from being a lot, spending a lot of time in the blocks for roots and stuff, but or messing about. So you got no hot water, so you just end up chewing them and end up liking them like that. So you said you were cat a supermax for sixteen years, mm. and then how did it feel to adjust down from that? Great, yeah, great. You feel like you're carrying a big parcel, and you've put that parcel down, and you've put it up over the shelf and you've left it there. You know, you can breathe, like, I'm going home. All those years of battling with the Category A, trying to get off the Cat A so you can progress through the system. It, it just, sometimes you feel that you're never going to go anywhere. I remember this um, senior officer came up to me when I got downgraded. And prior to that, I'd had Danny McAllister, the prison director, come and tell me he was downgrading me. Okay. And I didn't know he was saying it, it, we were going to downgrade me at the time, but he came to discuss. He said, uh, Is this right what we've heard about your paperwork? And I went, Yes, it is. He said, Well, I've come to tell you we're putting something in place in relation to your category A. Because I respected him as a governor, I thought he was coming to tell me he was making me high risk again because they were mm. saying that I've orchestrated getting paperwork out of a police station from within prison. So I thought he was coming to tell me that to, so I didn't kick off. Well, 16 days later, I got downgraded. Couldn't believe it. Because I thought I was, you know, this senior officer come up to me and he said, I don't know what, you, he said, what's happened in your case? He said, what's gone on? He said, but it was written that you were not to be released until you was very old or dead. And wow. he said that to me. Wow. Okay. And then when you have the, the, the stumbling blocks and the battles that you do over the years with the criminal justice system, to get taken off of the book, and they prolong it and prolong it and prolong it. You think you're not getting a fair crack at a whip. And you ain't going home. So when I did get to take by the book, it was bloody great. I cuddled a tree in Rye Hill. <laughs> i never forget. Right? I put my arms around a tree. Hadn't been near a tree in 16 years. <laughs> Good job we didn't have a squirrel hole. <laughs> What? I love this tree. There's a real meaning to this. <laughs> in fact, I'm in love. What's your name? So these screws are looking at me saying, I just want to cuddle this tree, governor. Cuddled the tree. I smelt it and that. Just like I smell in a bird, I suppose. <laughs> so I, I smelt it and I thought, oh, lovely, lovely. And then I, 
I walked a bit further down. I was going to a hospital, right, and uh, to have a look at my knee. And I walked across this bri bridge, and it was like running water in a stream. The two screws, just three screws, just waddled off. I just, I said, hold on a minute, Governor. <laughs> Wait a minute, will you? <laughs> and I just want to listen to this stream. And you hadn't heard those sort of things for years. So wow. going into a B-cat even at that time, you know, I was experiencing stuff that, it was it was made made you feel free those little bits and pieces. What made you want to write a book? My barrister told me that the book would make a good film. Um, I was asked to write some pieces for a Charlie Bronson book called Respect and Reputation. Uh, how respect is gained and all uh, reputations given. So I penned a few uh, pages and I made it into a chapter. Off the back of that, I thought, well, it's been well received. I shall put what's happened to me down in a book i feel confident enough that it, so i can do that based on how the respect and reputation was received and i wrote it of course i wrote it in 2005 or six months and they change about a bit sean you know you can chop and change them as you well know um and even up until publication i've moved the chapters around so when people ask me where the chapters i say i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it by letter in prison, sending notes out on A4, okay? A4 pages. I've got envelopes of pages like that where the book was sent into me in manuscript form because it hadn't been printed yet. And then I'm sending it back out. Uh, I'm sending them registered post. They're not getting out of prison. Usual stuff. So things are going to happen in the book where um, I'm pleased of it, okay? And I can't remember where all the chapters are. Uh, but sorry, I wrote it to get the details of my case out. Did you find it therapeutic writing? Yeah, you do, don't you? So they say like a diary a day is very good for the brain because you're getting the thoughts out onto paper. Uh, I found years later that I would write a good letter if, about something, if I was upset about something, write it down on paper, and then it's out. And you've had two hours or whatever you've done penning this letter. And then the next morning you can tear it up. But getting it out of you for that time, you'd only been sitting there stewing on the bed or looking at the ceiling, fuming or walking up and down. So, yeah, I think writing the book did me a, 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 a wealth of goodness in terms of for my mental state. And, and feeling I was going forward. Do you still write? Uh, yeah, I have, yeah. I've penned, uh, I started writing the second one. But that will be a while now, sometime. I'm going to give this one, uh, let it run. Because I want to overturn my conviction off back off the panorama program that uh is on youtube um i feel that when we go to the criminal cases review commission off of that uh it's going to be very difficult for them in that evidence that was used to convict me has now been proven to be false and fabricated so mark daly of panorama covered that and i feel that my conviction squashed and I stand a good chance of that, then I will write to get the second out. What's the Panorama program called? Last Chance for Justice. We'll put a link to that in the description box then. Last Chance for Justice. When did you learn you were going to get released? Uh, well, I first went for my parole and the, the paperwork wouldn't been prepared correctly, so it got put back my parole hearing. So I was in over Christmas, which was a gutter, you know. 
And then I finally went up for parole, got out, and I got out um, January the 15th, 2015, and I heard two days before that. Yeah, two days before that. Yeah. Where were you, and how did that feel to hear that, and who, who broke the news to you? I got called back from um, work. I was working in New Era in Croydon, a uh, metal company, Skips and such. I was working there. I got called back to be told I was being released. Uh, I was given in, in uh, writing from the Secretary of State, um, and I was given that by a governor. You half know at the time, though, Sean, you know, you're in a decat, you're going out, you're having home leaves. So you're getting a taste of life, aren't you? You you know you're going that way. It's just a matter of when. It's It can be prolonged at times, but you know you're going, each time you go through a categorization, you're going that way, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And, um, so you knew the direction you were going in, but then all of a sudden it's like, psh, there you go. I got chucked out of prison. God bless them. They gave me 46 pounds. And I went off to see my probation officer. I said, okay. I said, how about a flat? And she said, you've got the wherewithal not to be sleeping on someone's floor, she says, Kevin. I said, but surely I'm um, coming home and me having to go and get a living, which is everybody has to do. I accept that. But do I not... Uh, surely... I should be entitled to uh, a flat um, all these years in prison or somewhere to live. And I said, no. And if, you know, there's a lot of people that go back out onto the street now. They're all about making it a criminal law, aren't they? To release someone homeless. And they should do because many people come into prison and get released back onto the street but nowhere to go. So I got released on January the 15th. Went to probation. Under strict guidelines at the time, they've just been released, like I say. But free. You don't mind sitting in a traffic jam at all. <laughs> that was one of the first things I noticed was people giving themselves heart attacks because they're stuck in traffic late for work. And you're like, oh, if only they'd been in like an environment that would make them appreciate the small things. I said I, to myself, I, I love sitting here. I've got music. <laughs> I'm warm okay I'm free evening oh it's afternoon sorry <laughs> sitting there and you can pull off I'd loved it I didn't give a monk I thought I'd rather be sitting here than sitting in a bleeding concrete box in a traffic jam it's intense isn't it and it's like you're high on life but it doesn't last that I mean you've always got that appreciation that other people perhaps don't have but when you first get out, it's like you are literally high on life, but then it goes down, doesn't it? It diminishes to a point. But I have to say, Sean, my life license was like having a noose around my neck because I was always aware that I could be recalled at the slightest mm. problem. And it may not be your problem. Um, you know, you, a bit of road rage someone, you know, and, and whatever happens is you can be back in prison. So, so you're IPP? I'm a lifer. Uh, Life license for life. Life license. So, you know, whether it's common assault or yeah. uh, I lost control of my emotions and threw you, that could have killed you because you could have banged your head. Okay? That's the way they look at it. So you're always on a life license, which is, is difficult. And uh, I was always mindful of that, I'll, I'll say, but um, I did enjoy life a lot more. When I got flown into the royal enclosure and by helicopter, <laughs> taken into, into there, okay? And, <laughs> 
the geezer standing next to me is a king of guitar. Chatting away to him, he's got a great big cigar on. <laughs> <laughs> and at times like that, it was a friend of me who invited me mm -hmm. there. Okay. And you think, lovely. You're like, you're meant to be a contract killer. Okay. You're near for killing people. Where's the security? I've just been flown in by helicopter and I'm chatting to the king of guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, they it just made it all what it really was. Nothing. It's all bleeding crap. What did you do on your first day of freedom? I, what did I do on the first day? Well, really? Well, I can't tell you that, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're not my psychologist. <laughs> what did I do first day? Day two, perhaps. <laughs> day two. Um, uh, what was it like to be sleeping, like, somewhere that wasn't inside anymore? Was it like... I stayed with... Um, a friend of mine, Matthew Tate, I used to box with him. And he knows the bodyguard for Abramovich, close protection, uh, ex-boxer, uh, sports, uh, physical trainer. And he went there and he's, um, he had a house in, where was it? It was um, Kent. And he said to me, come and, come and live with me, Kevin, when you get out and the missus. I thought, lovely. So I went there first night. They went away. They went somewhere. And I remember I made a mistake because although I like to drink a vooch and that, I'll get trained the next morning and trained and stuff. I thought Bailey's and Jack Daniels was a drink you had to mix because I've never been a big drinker, okay? I'm not a drinker. I mean, I didn't drink to really start till I was 21 and that. So I put Gold FM on. I got Bailey's and Jack Daniels, making myself a drink out of the two, listening to Gold FM in a bath. <laughs> and that's very sweet, that stuff, isn't it, right? And because uh, I'd had a drink, I got out of the bar, I thought it was cold, listening to the gold. And I thought, for the first time in 20 years, I'm in a building on my own with not another human being in that building with me. And I realised then, for the first time in 20 years, I got up and walked around naked. <laughs> <laughs> Have you carried any of your habits from prison into your life now? Uh, yeah, definitely so. Um, yeah, definitely. I've always been organised anyway as a child, but I read a lot now. I prefer reading. Um, like if I go like in a pub or restaurant, I prefer to have my back against the wall, things like I that. I had that before I went away. My dad taught me that and I never realised, understood why in, uh, all stuff like that. My dad was a, a Scot from up in Fife, but you know, hardworking man, but he just showed me that something that he learned and um, carried it on. It's not so much that I I was in prison for many years and I never feared where I went. I was well received by my fellow interns and got on with people. And I was liked for that. And I'm proud of that, you know. But uh, prison's taught me to be more cautious and aware of what's going on around me, more so now than it ever was before. What are the biggest challenges you've faced since you were released? Um... people can be very difficult um, when you're a life licenser so that's ch challenging very challenging um, running a business it can be very challenging because people steal from you they get there late they leave early I had a lot of building sites up and down the country managing them was very stressful 
I wouldn't do that again. I knew I now do the modular building, which is the it's a modern method of construction. It's going to take this country by storm. Well, it has already actually, but I've been looking at that for four years, and I launched my company a year ago. Um, so the building game can be very stressful or very enjoyable, and I think the modular is a good way for me to do that. So. I had a long period in the building game that I feel was very stressful, going out the door at silly o'clock in the morning, getting in late. And I come home after a long sentence, so I had to go to work and I did very well at it, I must say. So I liquidated that company because of the recent climate and such, but I did 1.7 million over the course of middle of year to one, and that was with one company. So coming from prison with nothing, um, paying myself a decent wage and employing up to 21 25 people at one point congratulations um from nothing that's brilliant from office i had offices and i'd uh, i've still got the offices still going now um so finding a living uh to provide for yourself and your loved ones and your family and live a, a, a decent life within your means so we'd all like to be able to do this or do that but you've got to live within your means sean haven't you so so yeah. you said earlier on that you were only released a few days ago. What caused the recall? Common assault. So I lost control of my emotions by throwing uh, my victim who was drunk. And that they'd scratched and kicked and punched my car, drunk. And I threw them. I have to accept that I threw them. I only threw them. Say only. I still threw them. As a lifer, lost control of my emotions and it recalled me to prison. This is the thing, isn't it? I mean, if people are starting shit, what are you supposed to do, really? Just completely back down because of the Walk risk of going back. home is what I was told by Walk the magistrate. Yeah. Walk home. I said it was 50 miles. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> I said it was 50 miles. And uh, said, well, you wouldn't be here now, would you? I thought, fair play to you. But I had no money on me. My wallet had been taken my car keys, my house keys. I found the car keys eventually, okay, and the wallet and the car keys and that. Found them where they'd been hidden. Got to the car at six o'clock. So I was held captive. I was, really, I mean, if it was the, the boot was on the other foot, I mean, I could have had them for kidnapping. But I was, I was kept captive till six in the morning by a person who was drunk, uh, had had a drink. And when I found my bits and pieces, it involved uh, my car getting damaged. Um, and it's on camera, it's on video, so I know what happened and it's there for everyone to see. And I threw that person and I went to prison for it. That was the hardest lesson I've ever learned for that. How long did you do on that one? Nearly 15 months. <sighs> All right. And if I was a normal citizen, I'd have been bound over with an uh, £80 fine or something. Nearly 15 months. So going back then, seeing the same faces and the same staff members, how did that feel? Well, I've never seen these staff before. It's a new prison. I was in this prison in 1999 on the laydown, and I see one member of staff, as it happens, who was there in that year. He was still there. <laughs> so blimey. He <laughs> was the same then as he was now. He was all right, you know. They gave me the gym from the block two hours twice a week. I was high risk, double A. We used to go to the servery to get your dinner, which was great. You know, they used to put it outside your cell on the floor. So to be able to go and get your, your your food and see them serving it up, and they gave you a packet of biscuits and a hot chocolate sachet on a Sunday. <laughs> Boy, this is a very good block. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see one member of staff there, 
Um, but I found that staff have changed now. They're very different. Was it plain sailing then, that last stretch? No. Uh, prison will always throw stumbling blocks at you, won't it? What did it throw at you? Uh, I've got a three, uh, a baby son, and he coming into prison, COVID, having no visits, been locked up a lot. I'm doing my bang up. I can do my bang up well, but you see other inmates who do it. I don't have a TV, so I can lay on my bed and meditate if I wanted to, or just listen to bleeding a music channel or read. I'll be fine in there. Just give me some food. I'll be all right. Shut the door, please. Um, those were challenging when you want to see your son and he's at an age where he shouldn't be out of his life at that at a very particular time. Things like that. And feeling the unjust of it, to be honest with you, but over a period of time you accept, well, in a law-abiding society, you can't go about just throwing someone because they've damaged your vehicle. You've got to call the authorities or just ignore it. Anybody watching this now will go, all right, mate, really? I'll say, well, that's how I have to live my life. And if I don't, then I should go back to prison. Yeah. And that's the reality of it. And it's worrying that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to live down on Dartmoor uh, in the next three weeks. I'm going to get a tent and stay away from everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your plans now? Um, your business and for your own peace of mind, you know, you're going to have to like restrict yourself from going certain places and being around certain people or, you know. What? Yeah, I've got restrictions. Um, I wear this tag for six months, uh, which is still plugged in. So, uh, so our, this is our only guest we've had. He's got an ankle bracelet plugged into the socket over there right now. <laughs> I know it's embarrassing because the worst for me, sure, is if you want to go somewhere uh, on a business meeting or you, you want to go into a club in London, which is, again, say like the Arts Club or the Embassy Club, somewhere like that. Any club, really, or any hotel, and you've got an anchor brace around, it might start vibrating. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on a minute. <laughs> Just got to get the lead out. <laughs> it's a medical device. <laughs> oh, God, I've got an extension lead in the boot of the car. <laughs> Monday's out of the kitchen, will you? So how does this work then? Like, if you go somewhere... It reports to them everywhere you go, does it? And you're not allowed to go certain places. This was introduced by a wife. She wanted to know where her husband was at all times. <laughs> <laughs> and they sold it to the criminal justice system. And it's done very well since. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to wear it. I'm, like, I'm not even married, so there's a point of law there. So what's your plans now? What, what do you want from life? What do most of us want? We don't want to be happy. You want to enjoy life. I mean, life's about living. So I've got some tattoos. One life, live it. And that's like uh, Ollie. And I had them done when I came home from my 20-year sentence. And I've got one over here called Code. So I've got a, uh, a number of things I believe in. And like, so I'm, I, I wrote that book. There's still spelling mistakes in it and the, in the promotional copy. But that was done from me in prison. Um, but I'm, I'm not a dope. But So someone once says to me, what do you believe in, Kevin? I said, I believe in chivalry. Honour, DC and empathy. So I've had code tattooed. Well, honour spelled an, uh, an H in it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had to change it to oath, not honour. <laughs> so I believe in those things there and just enjoying yourself in life. And don't offend nobody if you can just enjoy life and whether it's 
doing something in your garden, cutting a lawn, enjoy everyday things that people take for granted. All that hustle and bustle and working your life away. Life's about enjoying yourself and enjoying life and the company of others. And, and you know, watching your children grow up or other people's children and you know, friends and families and such. So basically just enjoy life. And that is a lovely note to end this on then. So I think people watching this, the hearts are going to be going out there for you, man. 20 years for something you didn't do. That is so messed up. You can support Kevin by checking out his book. Link will be in the description box. Is there anything you would like to say to the people watching this in conclusion? Uh, yes, please. So I've got um, change.org. It's out there for people to see on the Fit It Up and Fighting Back social net, uh, network platforms. Anybody who could sign that, I'd be greatly appreciated. Pick the book up. Read the book. I mean, the book will really open your eyes to what takes place. And more so, I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it. And I say that based on, we're getting five-star re re uh, reviews right across the board. And uh, it saved me taking my nan's pension every month from her. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about this video. Huge thank you to the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom corner. Huge thank you to Joe and James for coming to film this today. Um, massive thank you to Kevin. I'll have to come over here to hug you, man, because you're ankle. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming thank out. You, thank Sorry. you very much. Yeah, 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 well done.